Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Today on the podcast, I have Liza Rader. Liza is a Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner who owns and operates focused dog training in British Columbia. A lifelong Nova Scotia duck trolling retriever person, Liza is experienced with retriever training and has done that training with a variety of methods. I wanted to talk to them today about instinct sports, and I am putting that in quotations, and what it takes to be successful in that realm with a positive reinforcement focus. So let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. Will you get started by sharing your name and pronouns? My name is Liza Rader. Um, I'm not super fussed about pronouns, but most people use they, them for me. Excellent. So today I want to talk to you about instinct sports, and I am putting that in quotations a little bit, but specifically for you, retriever training with kind of a positive reinforcement lens, you describe yourself as a crossover trainer. Can you tell folks what that means in regards to your retriever training? Yeah, so I grew up um, around retrievers. My grandmother started breeding Nova Scotia Dutchman retrievers in 1976. So I came out of the box. I literally didn't know that they were like, that people were <laughs> actively breeding them in the so, 70s. Sidebar for a second, but it was one of the first litters on the West Coast and she couldn't get rid of them for six months because everybody thought they were ugly golden retriever mixes. <laughs> And now people have right. like 400 people long wait list. So like, yeah, basically no one was breeding them. So I like literally grew up in a whelping box. And because of that, I was raised with exceptionally old school training methods. We're talking about a time when positive reinforcement training was like baby, baby, brand new, as well as a sport that is very old and very traditionalist. And so I learned starting really when I was like nine or 10, started learning a lot about how to throw a deck around field and how to handle the dogs and how to start the puppies. Um, And I've seen most of the things and I've done most of the things um, when it comes to sketchy training practices. And it wasn't until I was at university uh, in an apartment with my cats, really missing dogs, uh, that I started learning clicker training and found Kiko Pup. And it's with my youngest dog that is my first R plus toller, and he and I are working towards our sport goals together. Um, and he's very closely related to all the dogs that I grew up with. So it's a really interesting contrast because the genetics are exceptionally similar. So backing up just so that people understand that one reference. So just Kiko Pup is Emily Larlam, and we I will go ahead and link to Emily's YouTube channel for everybody. But basically, I think Emily was one of the first people to really put out a lot of practical information about clicker training and positive reinforcement training. And it's one of the first so people. good. It's so good. Yeah. And that I really emphasize that practical application piece. Like the information was coming out, but Emily was one of the first people to really show you how to do it in for a variety of things stuff. I found for me, the hardest thing is like, you know, when I had my first R plus puppy who I was joking, was like, he is positively trained, like bad, badly. And, you know, you walk around a corner and there's a kid and a bike and there's, you know, they're playing hockey and all my, like, and the puppy's screaming, like, do, do I feed the puppy? (laughs) Right. Now you know what to do. You can actually deal with stuff. So incredible. Lots of stuff, even like barrier training. I mean, lots of stuff that people would use more aversive type of methods she kind of addressed heads on. So we just, just shout out, shout out to Emily Larlam, Kiko Pup. We, we stand. So you're talking about Biscuit, right? Your little, your four-year-old current, am, yep. current uh, toller. Talk to me a little bit about Biscuit. Cause I know that knowing kind of who he is as a person will influence this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So who is Biscuit as a person? Um, Biscuit is a lot. He well, is extra. a gorgeous little guy. I love him dearly. He was my pick from his litter and through many circumstances, he has stayed with me for four years and he is exceptionally high drive. He's exceptionally intelligent. He's very high energy. Uh, He's a low frustration tolerance. He's also the sweetest thing in the world. He is a doll. 
I love him dearly. He sleeps on my pillow. He sounds like Felix. He sounds exactly like Felix. He's like, a lot. <laughs> he's a lot, but he loves me so much. <laughs> yeah, and he's just like, there. there's, he's also like a really cute toller. And I don't, like, I, I think this, but like other people have told me this. So it's not just me, <laughs> which is great because that's why he hasn't been thrown out a window. Like, yeah, your unbiased opinion is also that he's very nice to look at, which I argue often that you should pick a dog that's nice to look at to you because- they will be hard. There will be challenges and it will be easier for you to deal with said challenges if they're pleasing to your eye. <laughs> yeah. So my grandmother was a, like she did uh, confirmation and obedience and hunt tests, which is really what was available in the nineties here. And mm-hmm. the thing that she would always say with her dogs was yes, because people were like, oh, it doesn't matter what they look like if you're going to hunt over them. She goes, well, you have to look at them. Right. It, it technically doesn't matter what they look like, except that it does. <laughs> except that you have to look at them. <laughs> so you have to he's look at very them. beautiful. Um, his go-to way of dealing with literally anything is shrieking. Mm-hmm. So frustration, we scream, we're excited, we scream. Like that has been a lifelong process to work on. Um, it's going to be a lifelong project for him. He's the kind of dog who would just make such a nightmare of a pet but in a working home like he should be you know hunting ducks 24 7 in Alaska like he's on a machine in the field so that makes him really the perfect subject for this conversation because I've heard I've heard a lot of folks talk about these instinct sports and and those let's define those for a second as kind of the the job that the dog has an innate desire to do because of the selective breeding behind them. So that could be like sheep herding, bite work, varieties of hunting, whether that is hunting hounds or hunting retrievers or everything in between. I have heard from honestly a lot of people and old time dog people, like people have been doing this a very long time. And so I do respect their opinion that corrections, and again, that's in quotations, but what I would classify as high level aversive tool use are necessary since the reinforcer is the activity itself. And what that might look like in my breed and border collies sheep herding is various levels of pressure using maybe a drag line, maybe a crook that is thrown on the ground, et cetera, et cetera. Border collies think the sky is falling. So the, so we don't usually need to go like harder hitting than that. (laughs) Um, But when the, I think the the main point is that when the reinforcer at play is the activity itself, you have to control access to the activity itself, and it is easiest to do so with aversive control. I can understand this argument. It is easier. Yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. It is easier. It's probably more accessible for a lot of ways, but there are people getting it done. So talk about the the difference between it's easier and it's necessary or required. Like what what are we talking about? Is it required or is it just easier? So here's the thing. Uh, the continent of Europe exists. <laughs> and <laughs> BT dub, the yeah, continent of Europe where where things are banned. <laughs> yes. In case anyone is wondering. And there are many places where you are not allowed to do a lot of the things that we do in North America. Um, because they are not legal and somehow they have working hunting dogs and they in many places have field tests and hunt tests that are more rigorous than art so I just Ah. don't entertain the concept that it's not possible because that's just not true because it's being done okay no it's harder yeah yeah it's harder why is it harder what's hard about it so because there's so many so many ways the first one is is that frankly, dealing with dogs like my dog, like so many of these driving dogs, can be genuinely emotionally difficult. Mm. It can be really overwhelming to have that much drive pushed at you. I just had this happen with a client this week where we got her, she's got a very drivey little gun dog. And all of a sudden we just shifted the training picture enough that he was like, oh, I'm all in and Mm. started hitting her with all of that energy, all of that focus, all of that drive. And she immediately was like, oh dear God, it's coming at me. <laughs> and all of her mechanics came, fell apart. And we just, we had to take a second and be like, okay, like how does it feel in your body to move through the, the exercise that we're doing without this chaotic creature flying at you? So it can be genuinely emotionally like overwhelming. That is such a good point, Liza. And that's not a point I hear people make that often, but 
it is really true that your fluency will suffer when in the presence of an animal that is behaving in certain ways. So this happens in agility all the time that the dogs are like, okay, I don't really know what we're doing. We're jumping over PVC, whatever. And then a switch flips at some point and the dog now understands the game and the dog is really hot on the game. And now you have a completely different animal on your hands and you suddenly don't know how to do a front cross because you're scared. <laughs> it's hard. And, and sometimes it's even like, like with Biscuit, Biscuit is four now. He's a lot chiller. He's got a, in his line, it's very, sort of shows up that they're like really nutty for a few years. Then they hit sort of like three, four and it starts to come down a lot. He's really, like, he's still a lot, but he's normal a lot instead of like terrifying a lot. And my dad hated him as a puppy. <laughs> hated being in space in the same space as him because he's so much and will now comment on every other toller puppy he meets that's not like that and be like see this one <laughs> it's not like that you can just like the vibe it starts to make you anxious sometimes like it's hard to be around so there's that they're they're fast you have to be on it you have to be perfect and that's a lot to ask of a handler especially a new handler who hasn't you have to be handler. on it and perfect like yeah what a tall order and if you aren't because this is the hard part i think if you aren't it can be very punishing because now you have biscuit screaming yeah or maybe certain other dogs are biting yeah you know spinning etc like there are behavior leaving, going like cool i'm up by or just cool. Then I'm gonna go get the bird without you, or yeah. or I'm gonna. Run You're the doing it wrong. I'll do it by yeah. myself. You wait here. Yeah, I've got this. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I had. I wanted to tell a story. It was a perfect moment. I had. I was teaching Biscuit voluntary sharing, and we're at the point where so he presses the button, click, treat in the bowl, and then treat to the dog. We're doing that. That's going great. And he's like, "This is awesome." I've got the, the thing duct taped down, so it doesn't go flying. And then we get to the step where I, now I'm going to insert, he's going to press the button and I'm going to click as I put the treat in the bowl and then hand him a treat. So the, the process is exactly the same, except for where the click happens. The click was delayed by like, what, a second? And he ripped the button off the duct tape and hurled it across the room and looked at me like, how could you? <laughs> he's like, I did it. Where where were you on that one? Which is why you need to record your training sessions because sometimes your dogs do hilarious things and you don't get it on video. But like if if I had been like more emotionally invested in that moment or if I didn't know what was going on, that would have been very upsetting. Yeah. So that emotion piece, that's a big one. So kind of what these animals make us feel and how they affect our fluency. That's that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. What are other things that make it harder to do this from a pretty strictly positive reinforcement lens? I think the the two biggest ones, so for for new people coming in, um, is that the framework doesn't already exist for you. So if I want to learn rally Mm -hmm. obedience, I can go online, I can find a class, there's a handful of trainers around me who use positive reinforcement training, I can go to them, I can do an online thing, there is so much available to me. And they've already figured out the process of how to do that. I want to do obedience. I can go buy Hannah Brannigan's book and she will tell me how to do it. Thank you, Hannah. We love you, Hannah. And if I want to do something like retriever training, I'm bushwhacking. You're literally in the woods with a machete trying to figure this out yourself. (laughs) There are a handful of people who have published things that are of varying degrees of quality over the years. Absolutely. I've seen them. There are things, there's information. Some of them are great. Some of them are terrible. Some of them are good in some aspects with big caveats. And if you're not, if you're a new trainer, how are you supposed to now? How are you supposed to piece out the caveats? Like that's, that's the hard thing is that for instance, like just circling back to Hannah's Hannah Brannigan's book, Awesome Obedience. And I'll link all of these wonderful people that you are citing in the notes for sure. But what Hannah did was basically say, here's the gist, here's the framework, here's how to teach the exercises. And that exists so infrequently in so many spaces. And you're saying that the specific retriever training that you would like to do for the trials or tests that you would like to enter 
that framework has not been written for you? No, the closest thing we have is Joe Lorenz for Sri Gundog. That's but who I was that thinking. is mostly uh, Spaniels and Pointers. It's UK based, which is different rules. And right. it's not in, in some places, it's not how I would choose to do it, which is like, you know, we all have our own different ways that we're doing things. So it's not like this, like, you know, here, and it's one thing, right? Now, the other thing is equipment is expensive. Decoys are expensive. I need a gunner to stand out and throw a dead bird around. Where do I get a dead bird? Where do I get wing? Mm. You can't sell dead birds in Canada. It's not allowed. Where do I buy one? So there's so many like practical barriers. Then we have the, um, the other barriers of how many times have I had friends and clients go to a pointer club or a retriever club and been treated terribly because mm. they're new. Not even because they do it different because they're new. Literally, right? they don't even know if they do it different yet. Like you're just new. It's just, just new me. and how dare you. It's just the global problem of dogs and dog sports, which is that we eat new people. It's just, I mean, it's just really appalling, but it's, it's consistent really across sports. Why does nobody play our anymore? Have you tried not being awful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really true. I will say, you know, I see that I've been in dog sports for like 23 years and I can now really clearly see it. And I can really clearly see moments that like, if I hadn't been in this for 23 years, I would have just left. Oh yeah. The way that you just treated me. <laughs> right. And I would have also left and have... never entered another dog show. Absolutely. And then you also have things like I get people all the time, way more frequently than I would have ever guessed emailing me going, Hey, I've got this new Labrador puppy or whatever. I really want to hunt or even like even full on. I want to hunt over my dog mm-hmm. or just, I want to play some retriever games with my dog. And my breeder said, I have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I'm like, how about we ask the breeding breeders about the breeding problems? And we ask the trainers about the training problem. Well, and isn't that interesting? And I think that that comes up in a lot of areas. So barrier, so what we're talking about is a cultural barrier. What we're talking about is a cultural barrier to trying new stuff. And that comes from a lot of different places. It, (laughs) It does. And this feels not super accessible. And I think there's probably a long list of ways, but talk about, talk about all of them. Like let, what are all the ways that this is not accessible? So I think the biggest way that for those of us, especially in the force-free world who don't, didn't come out of the sport world, who don't interact with a lot of working dogs and a lot of really like thrivey based dogs. And that, that there does tend to be a bit of a gap because the people who are buying the working line German Shepherd are a lot of times being given referrals from their breeder to go to their breeder's colleagues, right? Or their friends. And there mm. tends to be a little bit more of a gap. We tend to be better with like more anxious, fearful rescue dogs, right? Because and we, we being like positive reinforcement based trainers with kind of a traditional positive back background, like back. Yeah, that's care prior academy. What we're good that's, at. Sure. So we tend yeah. not to see as many of them and we tend to not be exposed to those communities as much. A lot of, I know a lot of force people who don't want to deal with sport world, the sport world because of all the pitfalls that can happen with it and the things you might have to see. Um, but the biggest one, I don't think people understand how big the industries around these sports are. Mm-hmm. It is not rally and it's not nose work. There are people whose entire job it is to produce working field Labradors who can go and compete to a very high level. They're dogs that are being purchased as fully trained dogs for thousands and thousands of dogs. This yeah, no, we're talking it. like, yeah, we're talking the, we're talking the price of a car a lot of the time. Oh, like we're talking. Yeah. A lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money. A lot. And times are tough, right? Like we all exist under late stage capitalism. We are all trying to put food on the table and pay the rent. And I think it's not that I agree, but I understand why the people whose livelihood is wrapped up in producing high performing dogs. I understand why it is so much harder to change because I've done the change. Like I said, my oldest dog, thankfully, is the world's lowest drive rough collie. Basically like a throw pillow. <laughs> we love him dearly. He's the a most really contrast one. A fluffy, nice one to lay on. Yeah. He sings us songs. It's wonderful. He is <laughs> exceptionally poorly trained as a positive reinforcement dog, I think. Like he can go out and do the stuff, but not, not really, because I was very good at it when I was doing it when he was low. Mm-hmm. It's hard. You are going to make mistakes. You are going to get it wrong. It's going to take longer. And that's not because one method is 
inherently more difficult than another method or inherently it's because it's new. Yeah. Cause like, if I am the person who has been training and churning out these trained retrievers for the last 30, 40, 50 years, and I've been successful with what I'm doing. And I've probably, I've almost certainly evolved along the way. And the dogs I'm training today are not trained exactly how the dogs I trained 50 years ago were trained. Like I've evolved, but I have landed at a place that's really working for me. There isn't anything that's motivating me to do anything different. No. And and there's a lot of incentive to not. There are, there's not to change and there isn't any incentive to change. So of course it simply exists the way that it is. And I don't think that you're in the business of trying to change that. And neither am I, I hesitate to say, I don't care because I worry about the emails that I will get, but like (laughs) the, the, the truth is that I am here to kind of, to help my individual clients with their individual situations. And when I used to teach a lot of competitive obedience, which I did for a a time, people asked me because they wanted to try some different stuff. And it was a small inbox. You want to know how I would do it. Right. They're curious. They want to know. And so you're here to kind of open the door for those people and let them come on in. And what I get a lot of is dogs that are really suffering the effect of some exceptionally poor training choices. Mm -hmm. And so I do a lot of undoing of things. So I see that end of it as well. And so the people who are coming to me are coming to me because they want a different answer. I'm not going to win an argument with someone who, you know, lives in Missouri and whose entire livelihood for two generations has been producing working line field laboratory. Right. No, this is not going to have a neck tattoo. That's not going to happen. (laughs) and that's fine (laughs) different planets basically (laughs) so what's interesting about this again is that I love again returning to the not entertaining that it's impossible but instead and and saying what am I talking about not entertaining that it's impossible to train instinct type sports without high-level aversives but instead saying, and here's how we might do it. Mm-hmm. And I, especially in light of very recent events in um, dogdom of the internet, I'm mostly interested and excited about talking to trainers about what they're actually doing and not interested or excited about talking to anybody about like us versus them or divided camps of dog training. It's It's so not interesting to me and it's not helpful. And so what I want to talk to you about then is when biscuit is, I I would love it if you have a specific example of this, but essentially, because I don't know anything about retriever training, like to a level that I can't even give you a hypothetical, but essentially give me a retriever training scenario where you're getting the shrieking or you're getting the I can't, or you're getting the just completely not the desired response. Like, the only thing I could, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about is like, he's not waiting for the bird or maybe he's shrieking, he's waiting, but he's shrieking. And I've heard that that's not desirable. <laughs> it might not be desirable anyway, but I've heard points wise. In points your, wise, you're in trouble if not- you pull or scream, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about that. Like how, give me some practical application steps because certainly I could correct that. I could, I could in theory correct that away, but what else can I do? So the toller screaming, we have to understand, like, let's use toller screaming as an example, because it's a really good one. Toller screaming, a lot of people hate it. A lot of people, I, I kind of think it's cute. I'm just, I'm used to my girls screaming at me when like the whole time I was growing up, the girls would scream when it was getting ready for walk time. It made me happy. Like, I don't hate <laughs> it. But it is a function of frustration. That is where that comes from. My dog is frustrated. They don't know how to access their reinforcer. They're gonna scream about it. Big feelings are happening. I don't want my dog to have really big feelings about being frustrated in the field. As soon as I get squeaking, even, we are moving into something else that is going to lower that arousal. As soon as, as, soon as I get a scream, I've messed up my mistake. I move my dog into something that's going to calm him down. Sometimes I'm just going to end the session. If I don't know what's causing it, if I don't know what's going on, we're going to move into a scatter. We're going to go on a walk, like done. No more. I might move him into a scatter. I might throw a scatter down, go pick up whatever I threw for him and go like, okay, what the heck happened? 
what's going on. I'm gonna check my dog. Sometimes my dog is hurt. He finds confusion and frustration significantly more aversive than being hurt, but sometimes my dog's hurt. But it could send him over the edge if he's also dealing with like a cut foot or something. Yeah. yeah. And so we just, you take steps immediately to help it. But what is more important, I think, is what happens before that. So speaking of like, like teaching them how to sit on a line um, and be steady. So steadiness is the stillness that comes before the explosive action. If you've ever wondered why your retriever or your spaniel can go from a downstay to like bouncing off the walls up the stair turbocharged because they've been bred to go from stillness to explosive action and they have really big feelings about that. Mm-hmm. I want to teach my dog that the way to access the reinforcer is to be still. Yeah. So if okay. you look at the cookie. Foundation skill. Yeah. If you look at the cookie, the cookie will get flicked across the room and you can chase it and eat it. Pretty cool. If you stare at the bird, you will get to go get the bird. And if you don't look at the bird, you don't get to go get the bird. If you move, I'm going to stand on your long line. And then we're going to go do something else. So there's a very clear way to access that. It means like, again, just to quote Hannah Brown again, it's just good dog training. It's, it's yeah. not anything. Special. It's just dog training. <laughs> it's listen, everybody hates that, but like, that's actually the answer. There are no magic tricks. It is always just, we, it all just always comes back down to good training. And if yeah. you're having a problem in the thing that you're actually trying to train, it, there's probably a foundation skill missing. Absolutely. It's, it's either the program is bad or the prerequisites are not there. Those are the two reasons that things are going poorly for you. What I see the most in, in dogs who are like, so I see, I see two things with the retrievers that come to me for help. Uh, The one is someone somewhere did something unbelievably ill-advised and we are now suffering the effects like oh, I don't know, maybe my dog who resource guards and is scared of going in the water, this puppy, I know that let's throw the bumper in the water. And then when he inevitably can't go get it and is having a meltdown because he really needs to get it, but he can't because he's scared. We're going to send out a different dog to go get it in front of him. Do be my program. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Things like that. But the other really big one is things like my dog can do complicated casting and doesn't know how to get into heel position. Say what casting is. So casting is they're out in the field and I'm going to tell them which direction to go with uh, their hand signal or like a a whistle and verbal. I'm going to tell them, you know, if you sit, I'd like you to go, you know, stage left and the bird will be over there. So we can do that, but he can't walk next to you nicely. I don't know. Or I'll see them, they come back and they're like, I don't know what what to do with this thing in my mouth. Like I got it. I don't know what to do. (laughs) Right. Now we're further upside. We don't know what to do. (laughs) Right. So we see a lot of those like missing baby, baby foundations of like, here's how you move your body to sit next. Here's how you look for the thing. Really, really basics. Um, Those are often missing. And those are luckily very easy to fix. And I'm hearing that you're teaching the prerequisite skills because I do think this is really important. You're teaching those prerequisite skills with reinforcers you can actually control. Absolutely. If they can't do it for food, they can't do it for anything else. Right. You have a lot less control over a bird, dead or alive, (laughs) and you have a lot of control over food. And then I would say like, for me with my dogs, an intermediate thing would be toys. I have less control over toys in general than food, but which is why then I have to train toy skills to be able to use them. But, you know, like the folks I know who are doing largely positive reinforcement based bite work, for instance, are not teaching are not, you know, throwing the puppy on a decoy right away. Yeah, and, and I'm actually, I'm like, glad that you mentioned all of that the right there in that moment. Like, yeah, White Soul, another <laughs> shout out is teaching so many layered skills with reinforcers she has control over before her dogs are put in those harder scenarios. And I will say of all of the people with the, with the current way that I am going about teaching retriever skills, the most, the person that I've taken the most from is Shade. Is Shade Weitzel. Who is not, not regarding your retriever stuff. And she's never trained a retriever. I actually know that for sure. It's the same <laughs> game, guys. But it's basically the same. I mean, we're talking instinct sports. We're talking something that has an innate desire to do. We're also talking about, because I do think that the the attitude of like, cool, show me with the Malinois comes from like this 
this idea that your retriever is just never going to be as intense as your Mal or your GSD. And the, here's the truth. Yes, they are. It just looks differently. It's just not this always with my teeth. challenge for yeah. any misogynist dude, bro, who wants to come at me with a Malinois comment. Listen, bros, this is a challenge from for, all of, for all of the really misogynist dude bros who have made it this far. Try it with the Krithal's Griffon and come back to me. <laughs> Liza's got same her level own of drive. breed. breed. <laughs> I, same level of drive, same level of intelligence and sensitivity, and all of it is pointed away from you. Have fun. Yeah, right? So this with Malinois are coming at you. <laughs> They are. And so just very, it's just different levels of challenge, right? Different levels of challenge. And she, the most validating thing I think anyone has ever said to me about a dog was that she told me that she didn't want to live with Biscuit. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And she put it perfect. It's just different flavors of crazy. It's different flavors of crazy. When I joke with, um, I've got a friend who has a Malinois and we joke that like, they're just the border collies of the bite sport world. Like that's, oh yeah. This is, you know, border collies usually not coming at you with teeth. Usually it looks a little bit different, but just as intense and just as big feelings. And also like weird monkey smart kinds of things going on. And And everything. Yes. They, oh God, they notice everything. And so when it comes to your that's why I think it's so important to talk about the fact that biscuits a lot of dog and a lot of the dogs that you work with are a lot of dog honestly the most dog I've had in front of me at any given time if I'm gonna like have a competition in my mind like dogs in the running are absolutely field bred Labradors yep the dog the one dog like I work with almost exclusively high drive dogs I've I've grown up with with high drive sporting line dogs I, I work with a lot of herding dogs the dog that has run me off my feet was a working line sprinter that was the one dog that I got my destination went dear god (laughs) okay we're gonna say some of the other like whoa this dog is a lot are the working line English cockers like those dogs yeah they're little but there's a lot in that little tiny body. And when you were talking about the yeah when you were talking about the stillness to explosive movement I'm like yeah that's exactly them you gotta like, yeah, they got stillness in there, but you need to make it worth it for them because what they like to do is move, 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 move. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we're talking about is intense dogs. We're not talking about your rough collie. We're not talking about couch potato dogs. Like we're talking about dogs that you need to really lay down that solid dog training, those foundation skills. And I would say that's true of all good training programs. That is not unique to positive reinforcement based training. Any training program that is worth much, in my opinion, starts with really solid positive reinforcement trained foundation skills, prerequisite skills. Absolutely. Cause I do think it's important to mention, and I probably should have mentioned it up top because I may have lost some people by now, but essentially I think it's really important to state for the record that this isn't a dogmatic conversation for for either of us I don't think but certainly not for me and it's because I think a retriever that's out there fetching fetching ducks in the water every day but he's wearing an e-collar is a lot better off than the retriever that destroyed the couch yesterday out of boredom because they get a short leash walk around the neighborhood once a day absolutely so here's the thing it is a falsehood that one particular tool is inherently worse than anything else regardless of usage or context no matter what we're talking about no matter what we're talking about and a thing that i think that again those of us who just don't have a lot of hands-on experience with just like really intense working dogs Mm -hmm. can really easily overlook is how aversive frustration and confusion and boredom are they're exceptionally, exceptionally aversive. I have a dog who cannot function if he doesn't understand something immediately, like brain melt out ears, like cannot. This is the same dog who burned the calluses of all four paw pads off and then proceeded to slice them open because they were puppy soft on a bunch of rocks and didn't tell me about it until I was like, why is there blood everywhere, bud? He's like, no reason. You don't need to. I've had dogs come out of the field. I've had twice, two girls. Uh, one came out of the field with a cruciate, mm-hmm. fully blown, brought mm-hmm. her bird back. 
Of course. Another one, Biscuit's half-sister, came out of the field with her dew claw completely ripped open, huge gaping hole, blood everywhere, brought her back, wouldn't mm-hmm. put it down to, it goes in your hand. I'm not putting it down. Yeah. We're talking about, and we've, we've done this to them through selective breeding. Okay. They would run through fire to do the thing. And I think a lot of people, you know, if I'm just hearing what some folks who maybe do use higher level aversives on their dogs for their instinct sports, which again, like, I hope that you feel welcome here because we're just talking about good dog training, but something I might hear is, well, yeah. Okay. My use of this aversive tool helps me avoid that frustration feeling for my dog. And in my opinion, I'm going, okay, cool. Like then that's what your program is. Yeah. And I invite you to keep about other ways to do that. You, and I would invite you, I, first of all, excited that you see how aversive frustration is excited when any trainer recognizes that of any walk. Second of all, really hear and have sympathy for the fact that you feel like you can't avoid that frustration necessarily without this tool. And do invite you to be curious about avoiding frustration, maybe with another route, if that feels accessible to you. And if that feels like something you would like to be interested in doing. For me, there's such a huge difference between what what tools are kind of on the table for me with dog sports than with maybe some other stuff. We could have a real candid conversation about recalls around wildlife and whether or not I think some tool usage is appropriate there. Or we can be talking about the fact that when I throw the dumbbell in obedience, Felix would like to become a hovercraft and he needs to hold a sit stay. Yeah, yeah. And, right? and that's not to say that I don't have some hard lines because I absolutely do. I absolutely do. And that comes from the, from the gun dog world. It just is a lot sometimes, but like, please don't put an e-collar on your dog's genitals. I'm just going to ask you nicely. Like, oh my God. Be- there certainly, I think that there, and I think if, if you just fainted, cause you've never heard of that, it, ab- I, you can see it on YouTube right now. People probably put it on the internet. Folks. You can go, you can see it on YouTube right now and it's bird dogs that I've seen it. Absolutely. And, but again, but if that's something that you've been taught was the right thing to do and you are trying to achieve a goal with your dog and you are not sure how to do it other way, otherwise, like you can ask for, like, we'll help you. Like, I'll, I'll, like I'm, there is other ways to do it. I'm really, like, we can help you. If you're curious about other ways to do that, there are, and they exist. And I'd love to have that conversation with you. And they might not look like the, exactly the way that I would do it. There's lots of different ways to do it. And it would be really boring if we all did it exactly the same thing. And it's always going to come back to, you know, if you feel like that level of aversive control is really required or necessary, I am going to argue that there's some prerequisite skills missing here for this dog. And having seen like the, the program that I am thinking of, I have in moments of like bad mental health life choices, watched a lot of how that is done. <laughs> And yeah, in there moments are of choosing to educate yourself about the way that things are done, whether or not no way a form of self-harm is fine. And you know, I can look at that and go, like, that dog does not know what they're doing. They does not. So there are people who are using tools that I can absolutely agree to disagree with and learn from. I have very dear <laughs> friends who train very differently than me that I learn unbelievable amounts of things from. And I wouldn't have learned those things and I wouldn't be in the position that I am to be able to have people coming into my inbox and taking my class and learning and working with me and learning new ways of doing things. I wouldn't be that in that position because I would have never learned how to do the thing in the first place if I just went, well, you're doing it wrong. Sure. I wouldn't be competing in obedience with Felix if I hadn't learned obedience over 20, well over 20 years ago with very different methods and tools than I use today. And I'm really grateful to the people who took me in and taught me. And I'm grateful for the fact that I was always curious and pushing to teach different ways and to teach more and to, and it really came down to for a while there, it came down to my hard lines and what I will and will not do, but it's not about that for me anymore today. It's about just pursuing excellence in the training aspect. And when I do that, I find less and less need for the aversives or the pressure. I used to think that there were dogs that needed aversives. I absolutely used to believe that, that there were some Damn. dogs that didn't. Totally. Turns out I haven't met one of those dogs for a good few years now. And I don't actually think they exist. What I like to say, Liza, is that I haven't used a prong collar on a dog in probably 16 or 17 years. And in the middle there, 
the reason I didn't was because I was adamantly opposed. But since then, which has probably been about the past 10 years, it's not about that. If I have a client show up that's using it and they don't want to stop using it, I don't, then we just keep using it. That's fine. I don't consider that me putting it on the dog. I haven't used it in, in so long because I haven't needed it in so long. And that feels like the right choice for me now is that I do what I need to do to kind of get there. And I trust myself and I trust that I can check myself with my colleagues that if I chose to make that choice, I feel as though it would be an educated, well-informed choice versus the, I just don't, cause it's a hard line. Obviously there are hard lines. I have them too, but you know, but it's a lot messier than that because so I don't use prong collars. I don't use the collars. I use a slip lead to walk my dog to and from the car. Cause I don't like him being in a crate with the collar. How dare you? How dare I? <laughs> oh no. People have gotten mad at me for that one. I know. That's why uh, I said that. <laughs> but my dog broke, a, broke the line. So he in, broke the line means instead of waiting to be released to go get the thing, he decided that he would just do it. And I called him and I put him on a leash and I put him in the car. That was 100% aversive to him. Right. That's, you know, if, if it affected behavior in such that that behavior was less likely to repeat in the future than it is by definition a punisher. Yep. And he was heartbroken. Oh yeah. I, when I don't like Felix, I don't let Felix get the dumbbell if he becomes a hovercraft. It is a rule. And the other thing about these guys, they tend to be single event learners. It is heartbreaking to him. And it's also heartbreaking to me. And this is, we're going down a lot of rabbit holes, but this is really interesting to me actually, is that I could correct him for hovercrafting. And then I, I would get to keep training. And so then who is avoiding punishment now? Who's avoiding punishment now? Me, I'm avoiding my own punishment because how bad did it hurt you to end that session and put him in the car? Oh, and then you're like, and I'm a bad dog trainer. Oh, and I'm I, like, I literally, when I and don't then, get to send him for the dumbbell, it breaks my heart, not just oh, his. Like I am, as big, I am as big wanting to do this sport as he is. Well, and then you so get punished for now. What matters more to me though, is then the next conversation. So it's kind of like, like first thoughts and second thoughts. The first thought is what you've been taught to think. And the second thought is what you actually think. And so- the first thing, you know, my dog breaks. I have a split second to make a decision. I called him, I leashed him, I put him in the car. Now I could have gone, that'll teach him and proceeded <laughs> and done that every time. And told him he was ugly as you put him in the car. Absolutely. Yeah. Which we all I know could just point. be like, well, that's my punishment. That's how I'm going to fix it. Every time you break, you're going in the car. Now that would probably right. fix the problem. That would probably right. work. He's got really big feelings about getting to do the thing. But instead we went, okay, that's a problem. What am I going to do about it? Liza, I'm really glad that you brought this up because in no way do I want to imply that my training plan for Felix not staying when I throw the dumbbell is not letting him get the dumbbell. Of course, that's not my training plan. But you're also not going to let him practice the thing that you don't want him to practice. It is imperative to my training plan that I do not reinforce the exact behavior I'm trying to train away from. Especially when that behavior came pre-installed. So coming off the line, like a bat out of hell, comes pre-installed in Biscuit. Being a hovercraft is a thing the Border Collies do. God, yes. And that's, so that's I all right there. You don't make it worse. Yeah, SSBS, Sticky Stocky Bullshit, hardwired. Oh, I had Border Collies. I'm very, I'm very yeah. hardwired. Hardwired. And hard, especially for something that moves. And yes, like hardwired. I cannot, It has. it's already in a pattern of reinforcement, arguably every time it happens, I cannot lay an additional hundred on the table for doing the thing by letting them actually complete the, the scenario. But if I correct and then let the dog do the thing, they I have still got to do the thing. I have still arguably reinforced the thing. This is actually a podcast I did like of five seconds ago on reinforcement. And the fact that if you punish after something happens, it is for not if they have already accessed reinforcement and then you punish. And the beginning of that is part of the, like the, so I think this is actually a really big misunderstanding with people who, who don't train this way and who they think that getting, having the thing is the reinforcer. Right. No, but the entire sequence, the entire thing, watching the thing, like yesterday I was out on a decompression walk and there were some kids smoking weed at 9am because like West Coast, man. (laughs) <laughs> and Biscuit was like in a little sit 
all perked up, little ear, and he's and he's in like I was like, this is the exact same picture of him when I threw a bumper. Like he's interested, he's engaging, he's finding that like sitting in that little upright position, watching something, listening for something. That's reinforcing in and of itself. He likes yeah. that was really cool for him. Getting to go fast. The dog doesn't do anything slow. He does not walk. Yeah. Going fast is the is reason for life. Yeah. We're either still or also cool. Watching the thing. You if you watch a gun dog watch something fall, arc through the sky and fall, you will see visible evidence of their arousal level increasing. Their muscles tense, they lift their chest up, their eyes, their pupils dilate, their ears come forward. They're already experiencing reinforcement. It's already happening when they see it fall. Yes, it is. And so once again, if you have a really, really dense knowledge and understanding of the way that reinforcement works, you will find yourself being smarter about your training, whether or not you use aversive tools, you will be a smarter trainer that way. And so understanding that would it be a standard correction in that situation to you, would he, would he be wearing a prong in that situation? Or would that be an e-collar situation for most um, retriever folks? We don't really use a lot of collars, like, like collar corrections because they need to be free. Like they could get they tangled off leash. Yeah. and okay. they need to be, they can't have an e-collar on mm-hmm. in the field. Like they work often without a collar at all and yeah. without an e-collar in a test for sure. Um, yeah. and we try to have as little gear on them as possible because they're going through really high cover and it's a, you know, you would never want them to be off in cover with a prong collar on it's just a disaster waiting to happen so sure. mostly in in field sports we get we get slip leads and we get e-collar and okay then all sorts and so of in that scenario a standard response might be to give the dog some feedback via the e-collar or if it was a puppy i might have it on a long line and a or a slip lead and i might let it hang itself right let it really hit the end of that line and so again i'm just going to say it for like the fifth time If I correct in order to allow myself to do another rep, that is feeding my reinforcement. That is not feeding my dog training. That is me doing what is reinforcing to me in the moment. And it is not serving my long-term goal. Unless your long-term goal is to produce a lot of dogs, right? So again, we have to be like, some people have different long-term goals. Yeah. My long-term goal would be success with this individual partner that I have next to me, right? If my long-term goal is to bust out a lot of dogs in a production type manner, then maybe that is, yeah, maybe it's not an option for me. If I'm literally here making my living training these dogs to put that dog back in the truck, I would argue if you got 10 dogs in the truck, it sure as hell is just switch them out. (laughs) But you know what to each their own, I suppose. But I think paying attention to, I think in order to, cause we've kind of, we've said like possible people are doing it. People are absolutely doing it as far as it being training instinct sports without high level aversives. What it requires is a really deep level of understanding of reinforcement. What it requires mm-hmm. is really good a lot of time on those prerequisite skills. And really understanding. So to me, the biggest thing that I took, like I took shades, toy play, like webinar. Mm-hmm. And that was my moment of like, oh, now I get how to train retriever sports. Oh, now I get it. Okay. <laughs> She's going to love that. <laughs> She'll say, what do you mean? I've never trained retriever sports. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's the, it's the same game. It's just different flavors. There's a real, yeah, the, the game is away from me and it's reinforcing inherently unto itself. And I don't have control over the room re- in the, in the testing situation. I do not have control over the reinforcer. I'm not throwing the bird. I'm not even. I'm going to signal to the judge that I'm okay that the bird gets tossed and then it's kind of out of my hands. And just like with bite sports, you don't control the decoy in a testing situation. And so for him, like my dog understands that if he is still, that unlocks the rest of the game. Mm -hmm. And he also understands that if he puts the object in my hand, that unlocks the other half of the game, the reinforcement, and then the setup for the next rep, which is also, as soon as he's like, we're, do, we're doing it, we're doing the thing, doing the thing, oh my God, we're doing the thing, right? Like, it's, it's this big cycle of reinforcement, this huge sequence that he does, and every part of it is reinforcing, but he understands how to unlock the next step. 
And this is how I have a dog where a lot of people who have told me there's absolutely no way you could ever possibly train it this way are like, he's so steady on the line. Shocking. I'm like, uh-huh, it's almost like it works or something. But it's because he <laughs> understands. It's not because he doesn't, he's worried about what's going to happen if he gets up. Very little will override his, his drive to retrieve. He's a very driven dog. It's not because he's worried about what's going to happen. He's not because he, he knows that if he gets off, he's going to get a correction. It's not because he's like, I have to stay here. Or it's, if I do this, they're going to throw the thing. I know the button. I have control. He has control. It's controlling his mind essentially versus controlling him physically in any way. Yeah. And letting him, like he thinks that he controls the whole thing. Yeah. He's not wrong. And part of what I do is I do a lot of checks, checkpoints throughout the whole thing. So the whole retriever sequence of like, we're going to walk up to the line. We're going to, the bird's going to go, we're going to go get the thing. You're going to come back. We're going to do the reinforcement. Like that's a huge, big sequence that we do. There are checkpoints. If you cannot walk next to me and then sit at my side, I will not throw the toy or signal for the toy to be thrown for you. Because if you can't do that, then you're not ready to do the play the game with me. There's something else we need to fix. You're speaking my language. This is how I if do you everything. Get off the line, then you can't. I'm so sorry. You cannot continue with the game. That if you can't mark, so marking is how the dog, the dog watches the fall of the bird, mm-hmm. and they need to see it go down and hold it in their focus. If you can't focus on where the thing fell, like if you're starting to like, and he's started to do this, which I've never seen one of my dogs do this before, and I I think it's a result of this. We will see with future dogs if this happens again. But if he's uncertain or uncomfortable, there's something else going on and he, he watches the fall of the toy and he doesn't feel comfortable being sent out for whatever reason, he will shift his head sideways and just his eyes. So it's his muzzle is pointing forward, but his little head turns and he just looks at the ground. And I've just started going like, I'm assuming that that means that you're not ready to do the thing. So we're going to go, we're going to fix it for you. We're going to do something else and come back to it another day. Wow. So if I get any clue that you're not marking clearly, if I or if I send you back to a memory, um, right now we're working on blinds with him. If I send you back to something that you haven't immediately seen the fall of, if you can't pick a spot that you're going to go to, even if it's not the right spot, pick a spot and go to that. If you can't immediately pick up that toy, if you can't immediately put press it into my hand in the way that I asked you, not the way that you think, either I would like you to sit in front of me and I can take it from you. You can get into my heel and I'm going to take it from you or you can press it into my hand. I will tell you which one. Yep. If that doesn't happen, and then if he doesn't readily switch to his reinforcer right after that, if any one of those things doesn't happen, then there is something wrong with the game and we will not continue. Yeah, so you're allowing the game to build upon itself versus a person could correct those moments. A person yeah. could say, uh-uh, dude, pay, you know, pay attention, do it this or way. Just ignore them. What I see a lot of is just like ignoring those subtle signs of his subtlety gets ignored. A hundred percent. And then too. that's when we get the dogs who are spiraling through the roof. And that's when we need the corrections. Cause now I've got a dog who's bringing the toy back and throwing it at me or bringing the toy back and sprinting past me and going, no, 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 it's mine. It's mine. You cannot have it. It's mine. Or I get the dog who like goes out halfway and is like, I've seen this so many times that I get sent out. They saw the mark. I know that they know where it was and they stop about two thirds of the way out. And they're like, it's an interesting sniff. I think I'll stay here. And inevitably the dog's being an asshole. No, there's something right. wrong. There's something the wrong. No signs. And it's, I talk about this in agility constantly because this is a really common, this is an average email for me to get is basically my dog's got this big, big problem in agility. And like, it's fill in the blank. The dog attacks the teeter. The dog stalks and stares at the next dog on the line. The dog leaves mid run to go grab its leash. The dog, you know, blah, 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 right? Like fill in the blank. And then the questions of, well, dog, can the dog offer eye contact to you in the parking lot? Yeah. Can the dog offer eye contact to you outside the ring? Like if if the parking lot's a yes, how about right inside the building? Can the dog respond to cues like sit and down and nose target ringside? Can the dog do a downstay ringside? The answer to these questions is 100% of the time, no. Yeah. Because, and again, accessibility, that's not in anybody's foundation agility class. No. Everyone's kind of- For so many reasons. Right? 
for a lot of reasons. And again, capitalism, because if I'm running an agility class and you think it's an agility class and now it's an eye contact class, you are not happy with me and I'm trying wow. to pay my bills. Right. And so, and I mean, that used to be, that was my career in the very beginning was trying to make these people happy, but also te- trying to teach them the things that I knew that they needed. Right. This is why I don't teach puppy class anymore. <laughs> <laughs> puppy class. Extremely I kept kicking my toller puppies out of puppy class and you don't make money <laughs> when you send them all away. <laughs> It's true. You don't. Puppy puppy class is extremely frustrating. I feel like that's one of the first things I stopped teaching, actually, when I stopped teaching group classes on and like a slow cascade. But right. So it's your ask. I call these just um, I, Shade White Soap calls it ready to work procedures. I call it arousal testing. I there's just everybody who's doing a great job at with these high level dogs is doing this on some level. Because yeah, you need to know what you're getting before yeah. it's exploding in your face. And again, these are again, these are the dogs who will burn their paw pads off and keep working. Yeah. One of the things I select for in toilers when I'm assessing them structurally as little baby beans is paw pad thickness. They do dumb stuff. <laughs> yeah, we need and that. And Biscuit has very, like, that was one of the things actually from his uh, puppy assessment. I was like, oh, I really like his paw pads. And he fully burned them off. <laughs> he had little pink puppy feet. And he was like, it's fine. Throw the toy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that, you know, we're, we're going, going on a, a long, long wild goose chase here because there's so much to talk about and this. This topic is so dense, but the thing I'd like to end on and kind of round us out about, because I know that you and I feel the same way about this is that if you're going to ask these really high level dogs to control themselves and you're not going to do that work for them, you're going to ask them literally to control themselves. You have a job to do on the other side of it then, which is making sure that their exercise needs are met. Mm-hmm. I will die on this hill. <laughs> <laughs> I will also die on this hill. Stop trying to kill me on this hill. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is especially true when they're going to be off leash and running. Uh, yeah. So if off leash and running is at a deficit, how capable are they of then controlling themselves while off leash and running? And how much more aversive is it when you don't let them do the thing? If we're talking about, I don't want to train with heavy oh aversives, if I've got a dog That's who a good is point. living to work and has no opportunity to run loose, let's talk like, like retrievers are one thing, pointers. Pointers need more so than any other subgroup of dogs off leash time. I would agree with you. In my experience, that's true. Yeah. And let's say I've got, and this is the thing that I keep hearing in reinforcement-based gun dog stuff a lot. Don't ex- like don't exercise them outside of training. Like that might be fine if you live in the middle of nowhere and you are working your hunt your hunting dogs every single day. That might absolutely work for you. Yeah, what about an average, average person who's got a German short hair? And they're like, man, this dog's really cool and really a lot for me. And I want to get involved in hunting, but they like live in suburbia. They're going to come and see you once a week. That you got to help them fill that gap fine. the rest of the days. And arguably they, they screw something up. And that's a situation where you would put the dog away. You would take away the opportunity to work as your consequence. Arguably, if the dog is at an exercise deficit, it is kinder to hit them with that high level aversive. So they get to keep working in a lot of dogs. Absolutely. And so that uh, one thing that I do, I'm very careful with how much I take them out. I will just feed it sometimes. Like if I get the response, like, let's say I ask this to, and this actually happened yesterday, there was a big kerfuffle with training and and it didn't work. Um, and I asked him to get into heel position and he went, and I went, oh, okay. <laughs> that didn't work. And I just threw food at him. <laughs> which is not a training plan but is a get it's out of dog but it also didn't so i can hand this dog stay in the field and it will not reinforce anything because it's not a reinforcer so you know a lot of times i will actually this is one thing that i do a lot with dogs who are really really intense about toys and getting the thing is if you check in with me on a walk you will be fed i know that you wanted the toy but you checked in with me. So you got fed and this certainly would work for some dogs. For some dogs, this would be too frustrating and that would be unfair to them. For my dog, he looks at me, gives me the middle finger, eats the food and leaves. He's just like, not my real mom. Because he'd like to what? Because you're not my real mom. Because he'd like to what? He'd like to walk backwards staring at you saying, throw the thing, throw the thing, throw the thing. And you'd like him to go decompress. 
absolutely. He would, and because taller, he'd like to body slam me. Yeah. Okay. We're yeah. walk backwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Much less personal space. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing. The thing that I have found so much with gun dogs that I wasn't expecting is how much I'm throwing food to just like give me personal space. Like you cannot <laughs> train with your dog in your zone. <laughs> you have no personal space. So you know, like I would like you to be sniffing or like, go find me something else to throw for you. That's what Biscuit does on his decompression walks. He spends the whole time hunting for stuff for me to carry around and not throw for him. Cool. You can do that. That's a, that's an activity that will calm me down. Hunt. Yeah. And you know, if I've got a handful of sticks under my arm, I do, I didn't bring you here to bug me. If you bug me for toy, I will feed you because the predictable result of bugging me when we're out is to be fed. And I found with him, it does, hasn't decreased how much he's checking. He's actually, it's actually increased how much he checks in with me because I'm really consistently reinforcing it. Well, and he switched over. I mean, he's the function of checking in. He now knows his food. Like that's yeah. the difference. And it's, and it's not that he doesn't like food. He likes them with consistency. So it still happens, but it changes what the behavior looks like. Because any anytime we actually shift the function of something, we do change what it looks like. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, it's absolutely possible to train these instinct sports without those high-level aversives if you choose to. But there are accessibility concerns. It absolutely requires uh, wellness at the forefront as everything does, but really specifically with these dogs, I think exercise is. Exercise is so, so vitally important and it is so, so overlooked. And there's. It is, especially with thinking, I've actually got another podcast with an ex, with an actual expert on this coming down the pike. The argument that giving them more exercise just builds endurance and makes them need more exercise, I think is completely false. And I have an actual sports medicine expert coming on to talk about how it's false. Your German short hair is going to need a ton of exercise, whether you exercise them or not. So you probably should exercise them. It it will work out better for you. And the other thing that's more difficult with the sporting dogs versus say a herding dog with all, with my herding dogs who I've had, I've had three, if I reinforce them half as much as I reinforce the sporting dogs for staying close to me, I would be constantly tripping over collies. Yes, totally true. And like my poor collie is just like, they don't understand why everybody gets fed more than me. I'm like, cause you won't go away. <laughs> Need to get out. That's Iggy. Iggy's walking. Iggy's like jumping vertically next to me. Like, did you notice me? <laughs> I need food. And I'm like, yeah, I need you to go away. <laughs> yeah, you need to go do the thing. Whereas the, the gun dogs tend to have a much bigger range. They are bred to go far and they're bred, bred to, to have a bigger range. Line. Absolutely. It's harder to find places to, to give a decompression walk to a Vizsla than it is to an Aussie. This huge range. Mm-hmm. It's a huge range. Your safety concerns are different. You have to be a little bit more aware of bears. Like, yeah, really true. And, so and I, I wish we would make it issue as well. I wish we would have those conversations before people would buy their dog. Never happens though. Never it's happens though. But if, a conversation afterward. <laughs> Never happens. But if you do have one, that has to be priority number one because everything else will come after. Yeah, everything will. All right, Liza. This has been up, down, sideways. We've gone here. We've gone there. I think that, well, I'll give you an opportunity to have like a closing thought on this if you want to. Yeah. It's not a simple thing. Practically, emotionally, the practical reasons are simple. Do the thing. Like just, just, just go train the dog. Do good dog training. Get the title. Show up anyways. Post the photos of your dog on the hunt and be open about what training practices or put the video on the internet, show your work. That's how the people who care about it and we're doing it because it is practical and they know this is the way that they know how to do it. And they have a goal to achieve. They want to get that title. They want to hunt over their dog. They're doing that way because this is the way that works for them. And if you care about doing the thing, and if you care about affecting change, you just have to do it. And there's no kind of easy way around that. But if we ignore the people who are going like, Oh, blue hair, right? You can't tell me what to do. Like, you're not gonna win them over. It's fine. The person who's like, you cannot train without a force fetch. Like, that's fine. You can think that. It's okay. I'm gonna go over here and do it anyways. And I think that that's that's an important part to end on. There are varied reasons why or why not. And what is important is that we consider kind of all of the entire bullet list here and go forward. And I think it's really cool. When it gets scared. done, 
Love it. Yes. Do it scared. Do things scared. We'll end on that. Thanks, Liza. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.